Well, good morning, everybody. Very enthusiastic, guys. Um, my name is Kevin Figgins, just to give a quick intro, because I've had people ask uh, the questions, who are you and what are you doing here? And so just to be clear, if you missed the memo, my name's Kevin Figgins, my wife Tara, we have four kids. Uh, we have been called to Columbia Prez to be the uh, church planner in residence. So we will eventually leave here after about a year to go and plant a, tr- a church in Lexington, South Carolina. Okay? So just so we're clear, I will be here learning from the leadership of this church, but also learning from you guys what it looks like to plant a new church. Because that's what we've been called to do. And I'm excited. We are, as a family, are excited to be here. And I'm also excited to be preaching God's Word this morning as well. So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy. This is our fourth week in, in 1 Timothy. And as we transition this morning into chapter 2 of this letter, um, we see Paul going, um, making a transition as well. So he went in chapter 1, he's stressing right doctrine and right living to Timothy, and he will come back to this again, as Paul does. He does this throughout all of his letters, but he will come back to this again in 1 Timothy Uh, And he kind of makes a switch to the duties and the responsibilities of a local church. And this kind of takes place for the rest of the the letter to Timothy, about Timothy, this is is the function of a local church. This is what it's supposed to look like. And he does that in a number of different ways. So he talks about different roles that people have in the church, men and women. Uh, You have deacon and elder qualifications um, that he lists out in chapter 3. He has how we are to treat people, even things as simple as that. How, do, how does a young pastor like Timothy, how are you to treat an older man in your congregation? How, do you, how are you to treat an older woman in your congregation? How are you to treat um, those who have lost husbands, the widows in your congregation? What do you do with those types of people as a pastor? And that's what Paul kind of begins to um, go into with Timothy. And the reason Paul does this is that his great fear of the church in Ephesus. It's a small church, but his great, great fear of the church in Ephesus was that its mission would be lost and its light would be put out. And so we already see from chapter 1 uh, that Paul warns Timothy that sin and corruption will assault the church and they will make a breakthrough if certain things are not in place. Paul already tells Timothy that he's handed two men over to Satan because they have made a shipwreck of their faith. And these are men who are trying to make an assault against the church. And so this is where we pick up the letter in 1 Timothy chapter 2, after Paul has got uh, finished with, with all those about these men who have been handed over to Satan and made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul picks it up with these very practical things in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So let me read that for us this morning. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that the meditations of uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you this morning for the glory of God in the name of Christ. Amen. So there's a, it's important to recognize three kind of main things here in First uh, Timothy chapter two in these seven verses um, because there's a key word that you see over and over in these seven verses, and that word is all. And so I want us to see at least that our prayers concern all people, that God's desire concerns all people, and that Christ's work on the cross concerns all people. And I believe that you will begin to see that in these three main points, that this passage is communicating that prayer for all people and the proclamation of the gospel to all people is the means by which God draws people to himself and builds his church. It is not special programs or special preachers that will do that. It's through the simple act of praying and proclaiming the gospel. And all of us are involved in that. And so look with me at verses 1 and 2 as Paul jumps right in here with Timothy. He says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One pastor has said that one of the first great responsibilities resting upon the people of God is prayer. And this is exactly where Paul begins. It's with prayer, with Timothy. He says, make supplications, make prayers, make intercessions and thanksgivings for all people. And so we see this, this four, four cluster of words here, okay? Uh, prayer, supplication, intercession, and thanksgiving uh, can, be, can be looked at in a couple of different ways. Some people look at it as synonymous, that they're just all a word that just means pray. So Paul is essentially saying, pray, pray, pray. And it could be taken as that, and that would be okay. Uh, but also, how I like to look at it is just as different words with different types of prayers. Because throughout Scripture, you see different types of prayers prayed. Short prayers, longer prayers, prayers that are simple, and prayers that are more intense. And so this is what Paul is saying, that all types of, be, of prayers are to be prayed. So you have... Just the word prayer just suggests a general kind of approach to God. Is that as believers in Christ, you should be praying at all times. At all times. That you are walking along and you are praying and talking to your Heavenly Father because you are in relationship with Him through Christ. And then you have supplications, which are prayers that go a bit deeper, um, where we are, we are praying more intensely about a particular situation that's happening in our life or in our world. Sometimes that involves fasting um, from, from food or from whatever for a season. We have intercession, which means, simply means just going before the Father on behalf of others. It's exactly what Jesus does for us. He's, Hebrews 7 talks about uh, Jesus is always living to make intercession for us before the Father. And so we were to model our Savior in that way. And then all three of these prayers are to be rounded out with thanksgiving. It's probably one of the most important things that you could possibly do as a human being is just to, re- just to be thankful and to remember to be thankful. And God is saying, whatever answers I give to these prayers, you are to be thankful. 
So Paul's main point is simply to communicate the importance of being a church that, not, that, that prays, but also prays for all people in all sorts of ways and always being thankful for whatever outcome may, we may get. We don't say we can't pray for so-and-so because they're involved with this, that, or the other. No, we, we are to take them before the Lord in prayer and to intercede on their behalf. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 of uh, 1 Timothy 2 that uh, of the certain people that are included in the all here. Okay? Paul says in verse 2 that prayers are to be made for kings and all those in high positions. Kings and all those in high position. And this is a common theme in the Bible. Timothy would have been familiar with this kind of, this kind of charge. Um, God has always called his people to, to pray for those that are in authority over them. Whether they are Christians or not, God calls them to pray. To pray. In Jeremiah 29.7, God says to his people, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. So when we pray on behalf of the leaders of our world, yes, even the standing president right now, to you Republicans out there, that was a joke, guys. Everybody's kind of scared to, to laugh at that. Um, or it just wasn't funny, and that's why you're not laughing. Um, because during this time of 1 Timothy being written, the ruling power at this time was a man named Nero. Now, Nero was well known for his cruelty and hostility to Christians. This is a man who would burn Christians alive. I mean, he went after them and captured them to do this specific thing. So why would Paul tell this young pastor, Timothy, to pray so inclusively that it would, it would include an evil man like Nero? And the simple answer is, it's for the proclamation of the gospel. There's no other reason than that. It's simply for the proclamation of the gospel. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So when we are making prayers and supplications and interceding on behalf of the leaders of our country and our world, we are asking God to turn the king's heart in a way that will allow Christians to, have, to live peaceful and quiet lives. And God will answer, and he does answer our prayers in that way. We are involved in that work. Now, let me just make sure you know that this does not mean a peaceful and quiet life that's stress-free, that there's no suffering involved or anything of that. Anything, any bad things are going to happen to me. I'm just going to pray that everything will be peaceful and I'll be comfortable for the rest of my life. That is not what Paul is calling us to pray. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.8 that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think a great example of this is, takes place in Acts chapter 4, where in the, the book of Acts, as you probably know, is, uh, is the new church is, is being birthed out, and many people are coming to Christ by the thousands, it says. And so the disciples are walking boldly in the truth of the gospel and preaching the gospel to the nations, and people are just coming to Christ left and right. 
But not only this, so they have this freedom that they're walking throughout um, their cities and they're sharing the gospel, but they also get thrown in jail. And then some of them later on in life are killed for their faith and what they're preaching. And so we see in uh, Acts chapter 4 that Peter and John are preaching the gospel boldly and they end up being arrested. And later on throughout the chapter, they are released because the leaders of that day um, really have no grounds to hold them. Because what God is doing is so evident in this city that they just say, we, we have to release them. We have to release them. And so this is where we pick up is when Peter and John are released from being arrested and they head back to their friends. Uh, and this is what they do. They simply pray. When they, were, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set, set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is how we are to pray as believers in Christ. This is how we are to pray as the church of Christ. That we are to pray to this end for our leaders so that we can have this kind of freedom, that we can speak the gospel with boldness. And this is what God is calling us to. Because God's desire is that all people would come to know Him. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So just as our prayers are to be for all people, God's desire is for all people. And His desire is that all would be saved, that they would all be saved from their sin, and that they would come to the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for those sins. Now we have to understand about something about 1 Timothy is that it is written in a Jewish context and the Jews were a very inclusive people, still are at some, at some degree. Uh, they're a very inclusive, exclusive society and are not very welcome to outsiders. And so what Paul is communicating here is simply that the gospel welcomes all people. Jew or Greek Gentile, it does not matter. The gospel welcomes all people. The gospel is is a message of welcome. You are all here and you are welcomed to hear this message of the gospel and to receive it. I also want to be clear too that, um, that God's desire that all would be saved does not mean that all will be saved. Okay, God's desire that all will be saved does not mean that all 
will be saved. It, uh, this verse is not saying that God is a universalist, as some teach in our day. Um, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, people have and people will continue to, to reject this message of the gospel. Yet, I do believe this passage does communicate about our Christian faith that there is an inclusiveness to it, and there's also an exclusiveness to the Christian faith as well. It's inclusive in that the message of the gospel is for all people, okay? All races, conditions, economic statuses, whatever. The gospel is for all people. And we know this because the scriptures tell us that uh, one day gathered around the throne of God in heaven, that there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. It won't be a white, vanilla, suburban Christianity that's just kind of worshiping before God. It's going to be a wild place because the nations will be gathered to worship. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to keep His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's desire, is that all people would come to repentance. But the Christian faith is exclusive in that there is only one God, and that there's only one way to God, as our next two verses show us. So look with me at, Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So in these verses, we begin to see this exclusivity of the Christian faith in two ways. The first way is that Paul says there is one God. There's only one. One And uh, my uh, three-year-old son, we have this little catechism that he goes to, which are simply just questions and answers to kind of teach your children the Christian faith. Um, and he has this little simple one that we go through, and there's a question in there that, this is the question, is there more than one God? And so the answer is no, period, there is only one, the living and true God. My argument is that they should change that no, that period behind the no to an exclamation point. Because my son, when he says the answer, he says, when I ask him, is there more than one God? He says, no, there is only one, the living and true God. So to make this claim, for my son to make that claim, and for us to make that claim as a church, which we do, is to say to every other religion in this world that it is false. And that you are walking in a path that is not The same path is what we are walking as followers of Jesus. The second way we see the exclusivity of the Christian faith here is that Paul says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So a mediator, as you probably know, is someone who kind of is the go-between, between two usually opposing parties. And that mediator's job is to bring peace between those two parties at some level. And this is what Jesus does. He is our mediator in this way. In the book of Job, some of you are probably familiar with Job, but Job, if you know, is, um, he is going through an immense amount of suffering brought on, to, brought on by God himself. 
And so Job's friends come to try to be of some help to Job. And if you're familiar with the book of Job, you recognize that they really were not that much of a help to him. And this is how Job, in Job chapter 9, responds to one of his friends' uh, counsel. He says to him, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And Jesus essentially is answering that in Job and saying, No, there is. There is an arbiter, and I am that arbiter. So essentially, Jesus is laying one hand on you and I, and one hand on God, so to speak, and bridging that gap at the cross, and bringing us together in peace. And Jesus is the only one who can do that, because He is both God and man. And so this is also an echo to Jesus' words in Mark 10.45. Jesus' own testimony is this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. We live in a pluralistic culture, which says that there are more than one way to God, there's more than one path up the mountain, whether you're... um, you're, uh, through Islam, Judaism, or your own made-up kind of way. Um, Paul is essentially saying here, with these words, that Jesus is the only way, that that is false. And that there's no other, no other way under heaven whereby you must, must be saved, except through Christ alone. And to try to get to God apart from Christ will just leave you weary and frustrated over and over again. And some of you may have come into this building this morning weary and frustrated because that's exactly where you are. And the message of the gospel is come. You are welcome. Acts 4, 11 through 12 says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by men, the builders, which has become the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in conclusion, we have an exclusive faith, but we have an inclusive mission through praying for all people and proclaiming the gospel to all people. Look at verse 7 as Paul kind of recognizes this even in his own calling. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Paul recognizes in this verse that um, the demand of the gospel is upon him. And that Timothy being his true child in the faith, he's saying to Timothy, essentially, Timothy, because this demand is upon me, It's also upon you to pray for all people and to proclaim the gospel to all people. This is your mission. And this is our mission as well as Columbia Presbyterian Church. Our mission is if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are essentially supposed to make a name for the Lord in whatever sphere He has called you to. Whether that's at USC whether that's in your marriage, in your family, at your job, in your hobbies, the Lord is to be made known in all of those places because that's what He calls us to. And we do this simply by 
the simple act of praying for all people and proclaiming the gospel to all people. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you give us the privilege to um, go before you in prayer and that we don't just go to, go to prayer to pray for ourselves or those things that are familiar to us, but that we go before you and we are praying for all people, even those who are in leadership of this country and this world. And that we are to pray these prayers in such a way that we are able to preach the gospel with boldness. And so I pray that we would be a church that is bold with the gospel, preaching and proclaiming. In Christ's name, amen.